All right, now's the time for children's church dismissal. Anybody who has children ages uh, three through second grade, now would be a good time to let them out. Let them loose. All right. There it goes. Look at that. Just a little older than that puppy. Just as cute. What a good story this is, which we're about to read together. It's the story of a blind beggar, and it's the last healing miracle of Jesus recorded for us in the Gospel of Mark, which we've been looking at together for a number of months now. I want us to take a look at the scriptures together. Mark chapter 10, it's the end of that chapter, beginning at verse 46 through the end of the chapter, verse 52. This is the word of God. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Amen. Until a few days ago, I don't know if it's providence by the Holy Spirit or not that Elizabeth is not present with us at this immediate time, but until a few days ago, she did not know that I was going to open up this sermon with a story about her. She can listen to it later. With no ability to say, wait a second. When I informed Elizabeth that the sermon's introduction was going to liken her to the man in our scripture text this morning, Bartimaeus, she said, why? Is it because we're both blind? She wasn't very happy about that. And I said, no, honey, it's because of a different similarity that you and Bartimaeus had. And to my surprise, she knew exactly what I was talking about. Like, really? You connected those dots like that? She did. All right, so here it is. I'm going to tell you. A couple things that you don't know about my good wife is that she used to work for the CIA. I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to disclose what she did, and neither will she. But I'll tell you that she had an alias name assigned to her which I seldom, if ever, call her. It's too hard for me to pronounce. It really is. That's why I don't do it. It's, it's, it's too hard for me to pronounce. So don't waste your time trying to coax it out of her. She will not disclose it. She's not going to tell you what it is. But the other unknown thing about Elizabeth, and me, actually, is that we both liked the TV series Star Trek The Next Generation when it aired in the 80s and the 90s. 
Star Trek TNG, as it was called, starred Patrick Stewart as Captain Jean-Luc Picard. You may remember that. He was a very cool dude. At least we thought he was. Captain Picard. No hair. Like Earl Grey tea. Very intelligent. And for the most part, he was a no-nonsense, fearless commander as he explored new worlds and as he did battles with weird-looking people. Weird-looking creatures, I guess I should say. Well, one day, all right, now in real life, one day at the CIA's headquarters in Langley, in the lobby where you may have seen in spy movies, they've got this granite CIA seal on the floor, this big symbol. In that lobby one day, uh, while at work, Elizabeth noticed a guest being prepared for a VIP tour. Yep, Patrick Stewart. Captain of the Galaxy-class Starship Enterprise and the recipient of the highly acclaimed Order of the British Empire. There he was, just across the room. I can only imagine Elizabeth trying to catch her breath and thinking, should I approach him or not? What would I say? Hmm, maybe a little awkward. Should I engage or not engage? All right, that's a... It's a difficult dilemma she found herself in. To this day, I think there's regret that she didn't do it. She took the high road and opted not to disturb him. That opportunity had come and gone and is likely to never happen again. Gone. All right, so what's that got to do with Bartimaeus? Maybe I've stretched the comparison a little bit, but in Jesus' day, right, he had three years of ministry, Jesus had developed a reputation, at least one aspect of which was that he was a great healer, a worthy reputation, right? He he deserved that. And while walking through this town of Jericho, one day with his disciples and a very large crowd, a particular blind man named Bartimaeus, he was afforded an opportunity to possibly encounter Jesus to engage or not engage. From what we know, this is the only opportunity for Bartimaeus to meet with the Lord. There's no indication that he had this opportunity before this Jericho trip or any time thereafter. And by the way, that is sometimes what we're faced with when we encounter the gospel. When we hear it in our modern day, there's no promise given to the hearer of the gospel that he or she will ever get a chance to hear it again. That the salvation message will ever be presented again. Which is why our very helpful Westminster Confession of Faith, which you now know a little bit more something about, it actually asks the question, how should those who hear the gospel respond? It's a great question. How should those who hear the gospel respond? Take a moment for yourself. What do you think that answer is? No raising of hands. Just think about it. How should those who hear the gospel respond? The the testimony of the confession, it answers with this, and I'm quoting it. They have a duty to immediately accept the gospel. And further, that those who continue in impenitence and unbelief incur aggravated guilt and perish by their own fault 
unquote. Right? They have a choice there to ignore it, to put it off. To place the message of gracious salvation, if you will, on the back burner. Because maybe, maybe they don't think they need it. Maybe they don't want it at the moment. Maybe they have other, other important things to do. More interesting stuff. Urgent stuff to pay attention to. But I remind you. I remind everyone here under the sound of my voice that the word of God is living and active. So says Hebrews 4, verse 12. It's the word of the living God. And so when it's presented, it never leaves the hearer neutral. It never leaves the hearer in the state that he or she was in before it was conveyed to them. The sinner either moves towards God after being presented with the word of God, or they're moved away from it. Their hearts become a little bit more hardened. And the next time, it might be more difficult for it to sink in and soften that heart. They get more disposed with a sense of disinterest. Now you, we, we attend church on a regular basis, or most of us do. We're blessed with the hearing of the word week after week. But if you dismiss it like background noise, Because you've heard it before, you think you know what's coming. Blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just going out there in the sound waves, doesn't sink into your heart. You'll be prone to let it, to let the, let your mind wander while other things are being considered as it's being preached. You may entertain other distractions. We all do that from time to time, right? You might entertain other distractions thinking that perhaps you can multitask while sitting in the pew. I can pay attention to the word of God and I can think about my lunch that I have to prepare. Is the crock pot going? What are the NFL games today? Look, I'm not saying that we're robots who are lasered in on every spoken word of God by the preacher. All right, we're all human beings. We all get distracted. But I am saying that you must come to the word of God expectant that it will have an effect on you to pay attention to that effect, to not ignore it and then be willing to live under its conviction. Not resisting the Holy Spirit who desires, by the way, to draw you to the father, to its saving truth and to its sanctifying fire. So today. Maybe even as you sit here now, if you hear God's word being spoken to you, I implore you, don't harden your hearts. The promise of the Bible is that all who call on the Lord will be saved. All of you who call on the Lord will be saved. And so here we have an individual, a blind man, who realizing that he has a desperate need, he seizes an opportunity to call out to Jesus. Now, we're not told in this description in Mark 10, we are not told if he received any kind of spiritual healing. You've heard me talk about this many times, that we are spiritually blind. We need to remember Mark's chapter 2. When a lame man is brought before Jesus, what did the Lord do? Right? The guys let him in through the roof. You'll remember that. They wanted this, uh, this lame friend of theirs to be healed. Did Jesus heal the poor guy's legs? 
Yeah, but not right away. Right? The first thing he did, I mean, his friends wanted him to, of course, but when they overcame the crowds and they climbed down through the roof, Jesus healed his soul. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. Which must have thrown the guy in for a little bit of a, huh? I thought, why I'm here. But Jesus took the initiative, right? That's Mark chapter 2, verse 5. But as a second healing, Jesus then addressed the man's ability to walk. And so he did. The man got up, he pushed through the crowd, he carried his mat, and he walked out. But here, Bartimaeus, he displays faith, we're told. But faith in what? In Jesus' ability to be a physical healer. Maybe, maybe Jesus healed this man's spiritual eyes also. Maybe we'll see him in heaven. I don't know. It's just not made clear to us, right? It's not disclosed. But you'd think that after all the miracles that Jesus had been performing prior to that, throughout three years of ministry, that the many followers, especially the disciples with whom he had these private sessions in households and on mountains, around campfires and boats, you would think that those guys would have understood by now that service, service was the calling of those who wished to lead. That paradox, to be first, means that we have to be last. That the cost of eternal life is actually dying to ourselves. A willingness, if you will, to put aside the ways of the world in order to possess eternity, the other world, a heart given by God, softened by him, and in turn are giving it over to him, letting him rule our lives as Lord. Such a heart is humble. If you meet a prideful Christian, that's a problem. Such a heart is humble and it's thankful and desires to conform to the will of God. But the disciples and the crowds were told they didn't understand this yet. The blind man there, he's crying out for help, for mercy. What do they do? Do they enable him to come forth? No. We're not specifically told who does this, but it says that many shut him down, right? Verse 48, many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Shut up, right? This guy had no standing in society. Day after day, somebody drops him off and he's a beggar. They got to step over him or avoid him or something. It was not important to them. It was more of a headache, I'm sure, to them. But this guy, Bartimaeus, he doesn't have anything to lose. He doesn't succumb to their pressure. This is his one shot, his one opportunity to confront the great physician. Son of David, he cries, have mercy on me. Son of David. That sounds pretty, I don't know, pretty unique. I don't think the crowd and anybody in that crowd is calling him the son of David, but there it is. He called Jesus by a messianic title, which I think is something that got Jesus' attention. Again, some of you have been studying 2 Samuel in Sunday school. And I want you to remember last week's lesson. I think it was on chapter 7, which is the covenant God made with David, the Davidic covenant, which referred to the promised Messiah, right, the pointing of the eventual Messiah, as the son of David who would rule over David's throne for eternity, 
So not an earthly throne, but right one of those offices that we just responded to in the, in the reading there of king, eternal kingship. Not sure how this Bartimaeus fellow knew that, how he understood that one, but it's an accurate description. Maybe his parents taught him or catechized him or you know, made him learn the scriptures as a boy. And this lesson somehow had stuck in his, in his uh, memory. I'm going to take a moment as a total aside. It does come back, but as a total aside, I'm going to tangent just for a moment here. I bring this up because it confronted you, uh, some of you anyway, in Sunday school last week. That there, are at, uh, there are two genealogical trees, genealogy trees, if you want, in the Bible, describing, actually proving who Jesus was in terms of his lineage. All right, I can't unpack all of that here and now, but Matthew's gospel, because Matthew's gospel was written to the Jews, it shows us that Jesus came from the line of Abraham. That was important to the Jews, that Jesus was a Jew, that he came from Abraham. It travels, by the way, forward from Abraham to Jesus in that Matthew's gospel lineage. The other genealogy is found in Luke's gospel, travels backwards from Jesus all the way to Adam, actually to God, right, the father of Adam, but it goes from Jesus backwards to to Adam. There's consideration in Matthew's records that 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 line of Jesus is from the standpoint of his earthly father, Joseph. While that of Luke's, who is writing to the Gentiles again, is recording the lineage of Jesus from Mary's side of the family. And that Mary's mother, right, cousin of Elizabeth, wife of one of the priests, right, that she was from the tribe of Levi, while her father was of the tribe of Judah, Mary's father. Now, whether or not you subscribe to Jesus being a bloodline to David or instead perhaps a legal line to David, we have to believe, because the infallible Bible tells us this, it declares it so, we're shown this in Scripture that Jesus was a descendant of David. And that's the prophecy of 2 Samuel 7. There are lots of other Scriptures that prove this out that support it, that testify to it. But two of them, really one's found in Revelation, chapter 5, verse 5, which refers to the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, as having conquered sin forevermore. Who do you think that is? It's Jesus. All right? But we also have Genesis 49, verse 10. That declares that the scepter, right, the king's staff, the scepter, shall never depart Judah. Right? That's the king having an eternal throne. Shall never depart that tribe of Judah. That too, that's Jesus, King Jesus. All right, I told you we'd circle back, so here we go. Back to our text at hand. I think it's pretty insightful of this blind guy to, put, to, to connect those dots, right? That connective tissue of son of David, have mercy on me. But he does it. He, he pulls it right out of the scriptures. And maybe that's why the cry stands out. Maybe that's what gets Jesus' attention over and above all that commotion. And the Lord stops. 
Lots of people, we're told lots of people, the Lord stops and he says, call him. I think that's an application for us. By that command alone, we should see that the church, right, the people of God, the people who have confessed Jesus as Lord, Lord of their lives, that we should not be a barrier to the gospel. That might sound really obvious. We're saved by grace. Why would we want to keep that to ourselves? But it's not obvious because that's what was happening. You remember the, the, uh, the situation where Jesus was, or parents, I don't know if it's a sort of a preschool play date. That's sort of the way I think about it with mothers. But there were fathers and brothers there. They were bringing their kids to Jesus. And the disciples shut him out. They said, that's not what the master is all about here. It's not for children. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Let the little children come to me. Right? The kingdom of heaven is theirs. And we talked about what that was. It wasn't just little children, but it was babes in the faith. Adults who didn't have necessarily mature insight yet. Right? They weren't necessarily um, schooled well on the things of Scripture. And their heart was still being worked out in the early aspects of spiritual infant, uh, infancy. Anyway, they were behaving like a bouncer at a club. They were keeping out um, those who wanted to approach Jesus. They were not an open gate, but instead they were a barrier to the gospel. Another story. I think of this all the time. As a pastor, I think of this one all the time. Elizabeth and I once were members of a church. I'm going to save for you the denominational details to protect the innocent, but it was back in Maryland. The pastor there, he literally, I kid you not, he literally took the church van around the town of Laurel, Maryland every Sunday morning. And he collected up all of those homeless fellas, most of them men, who wanted to or who were willing to get in the van and come to church and listen to the gospel message. And that wasn't received really well by the congregation. They didn't like it. I'd like to tell you that they were welcoming, but they weren't. The gesture had not been approved by the session, so it wasn't administratively checked. Some people saw that as a preventative problem. These people who were brought into the sanctuary, uninvited by everybody except for the pastor. They smelled, right? They stunk. They hadn't taken a bath. They were grimy. There were hints of alcohol for sure because it was on a Saturday night. They were doing whatever they do and so on, right? They sat in the back of the pews, right where the important people typically sit or like to sit. You know, they've got their seat there. The doctors and Mrs. McGillicuddy, they've sat there for years. Those are made-up names. Don't read into them, but you get my point. Right, these, these uh, I don't want to call them bums, but you know, the indigent folks, they didn't know the hymns. And so they just awkwardly stood there, kind of like a fish out of water. And so you can imagine the fallout, right? This minister made a lot of enemies inside the church. I'm not suggesting whether that's right or wrong, by the way. I'm just kind of giving you an example where there was a barrier imposed, in, at least in my modern day experience, to hearing the gospel. The church was faced with a difficult challenge of stepping outside of its comfort zone in that case and getting outside of itself. They operated in a way that was different and uncertain and it caused consternation. Which, by the way, Edgemont, 
I'm so, genuinely so, very glad that you don't do that. You step outside of your comfort zone to the community all the time. Just yesterday's Dementia Friends is one example of that. Thursday, I'm sorry, Sunday night's Thanksgiving service before Thursday Thanksgiving. It's another example. You're extending your sanctuary, your fellowship, the Word of God to the community. VBS, Vacation Bible School, is another opportunity that you try to draw in the community into this, into this sanctuary, into our fellowship to hear the Word of God. You do not limit the life-saving free gospel as a jealously held possession by placing it under a basket. That's my experience with you. You don't do that, and that's one of the reasons I'm here because I believe and Jesus believes that we should let our light shine before all men. At the same time, don't get too complimentary here, but at the same time, you don't pervert it. You don't twist the gospel. You let it be taught as God presents it. You don't attract the unsaved. We don't try to, uh, to bring in the unsaved with tasty worldly wooings or messages or donuts or, I don't know, whatever, whatever floats their boat, coffee bars in the lobby. We don't do that. Not that there's anything wrong with coffee bars in the lobby, but that's not how we attract people into hear the word of God. We instead present the, God, uh, the gospel's truth, God's word, and we let the Holy Spirit convict as he so chooses. All right. So let me wind this down with a few points. I know I've run long already. I blame that on the announcements. One point is that this beggar did not know everything. He wasn't some theological scholar who had all of his Bible doctrine down pat, but he did have sufficient awareness to know who could help him, right? that Jesus could help him. Son of David, have mercy on me. Nothing specific, just a, a general plea for help. Have mercy on me. I don't even really know how I need help, but I know I need help. Sometimes I think that's all the biblical understanding that we need. An awareness that we are in desperate need of help. And an awareness of who to go to for that help. Maybe this blind man, he he indicated he knew his scripture anyway. They didn't call it old at the time, but the Old Testament, he knew that enough. Maybe he knew Isaiah 61, which Jesus quoted in the temple in Luke 4. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's a prophecy of Jesus that he spoke in the temple of himself. Right today, the scriptures are fulfilled in your hearing. Maybe the man knew that Jesus could recover sight to the blind. In addition to having his eyesight redeemed, I think this is, I, I think, I do think, I don't know how you can do that, and then we're told that he followed Jesus. I don't know how you can do that without having your soul redeemed as well. He had a very good head start over most of us in America today, for he was blessed with suffering. It's hard for us to say sometime. 
But Edgemont will never know Jesus Christ as a reality in our lives until we know him as a necessity for our lives. When Jesus says it's difficult for the rich to enter into heaven, it doesn't mean it's impossible for them, but of course the rich don't recognize the need. Those who are suffering do. That's just why, of course, we say there's no atheists in foxholes because their finitude of days are numbered, right? The days are numbered for those probably who are in foxholes because the awareness of the reality there uh, gives us clarity. It focuses us. It points us to the one who has power to save us, right? to save our souls instead of casting them into hell where there is what the Bible calls weeping and eternal gnashing of teeth. Let this blind man's uh, experience really be an object lesson to us. As I close here, what we have in this incident is a microcosm, a little, a little snippet, if you will, of the gospel. We're all blind. I, I hope you know that. I think you know that. But I'll remind you, we are all spiritually blind. We live in darkness. That's the way we're born. We're all in need of this healing sight, and only God can do it, right? Only the son of David, Jesus, God, have mercy on me, a poor sinner. That's all of our cry. It's the cry of the one whose heart will be heard by God if that is put forth to God's ears, right through our intercessor, Jesus. He'll grant us mercy. When you cry that prayer to him, he'll grant you mercy. Jesus will stop. He'll call you. How do I know this? Because the Bible tells us so. It says in Romans 10, 13, this perfect word of God says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Acts 4, verse 12, it spells this out as well as Jesus being exclusive to that. He's the only way, right? He's not a way. There's not many paths to eternal salvation. He's it. Acts 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Amen to that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Your word is a saving message. May we, by your grace, grab hold of it like a, I don't know, God, like a dying man thrashing out to grip onto a life preserver in a storm. For that imagery is really, as desperate as it is, it's really only scratching the surface of our real need for Jesus. Forgive us of our sins, we pray. Lord, forgive us of our sins and rescue us unto yourself forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.